You're listening to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and best moments in life, a place where we get a chance to hear from people who are creating a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. This is a place for connection, to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. We have such a special guest today. I am talking to my friend, Blue Sanders, and I can't wait for you to meet him. I first met Blue about 10 years ago. It was at the fundraiser that my nonprofit, Team Joseph, puts on every year, a country concert in downtown Detroit. The Eli Young Band was headlining our show that year, and Blue was out on the road with them, writing songs and working as the band photographer. After the show that night, he tracked me down backstage and shared how much being a part of that night meant to him. Because, see, our work at Team Joseph is focused on Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but Blue felt a strong connection because his dad had just passed away from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, another brutal disease with no cure. We talked that night about the book that he was writing to honor his dad and his own journey as a caregiver. We talked about the emotional toll, about the grief, and also about all the good stuff. And in that short conversation we had before the tour bus pulled out that night, we realized that although the diseases that ravaged our loved ones had different names and were different diseases, the journey had so many similarities. Blue is fascinating. He is a songwriter and a photographer and a musician. He has written songs with some of the best in country music. He spent years working with the Eli Young Band, and he's been out on the road as an assistant tour manager and photographer with Miranda Lambert. Some nights she would even bring him out on stage to sing with her. But Blue is not about glitz and glamour. The story he shares in his book, and he's going to share with all of us today, is a story of grit and grace and just a whole lot of love. Blue left Nashville in the music business for 18 months to go home to take care of his dad in the final months of his life. His is a story of selflessness for sure, but there's more to it. See, beyond taking care of his dad, Blue was determined to bring an old car back to life, even as his dad's life was fading. He was in a race against time to take his dad for one final ride. See, for most of us, cars are meant to just take us from one place to another. But in Blue's case, a 1941 Chevy Deluxe, as Blue calls it, a dusty old family relic, was so much more. Although he couldn't fix his dad, he did fix this car, a car that had been sitting literally in pieces in the backyard of his childhood home in El Paso, Texas, for over 20 years, a car that became a focal point, a reason for friends to gather a temporary respite among the daily struggles of caregiving. And Blue, he wasn't a car guy. He struggled to rebuild that car. But As he says, his story is really just about relationships and commitment and a lot of grease and sweat. It's about the grim reality of a terminal disease, 
coupled with life lessons from a Chevrolet. Blue is humble and honest about the toll of caregiving and the beauty of simple things and time, just time with the ones that we love. I am so thankful to have him here to share his very intimate story of love and ultimately his dad's final ride. Hey, Blue, it's so good to have you here with us today. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. When we talked after that first show in Detroit, you had said to me, I took care of my dad as he was dying from ALS. And I understand the fight for somebody that you love. I'd love for you just to share a little bit with us about your dad before diagnosis. Like, who is your dad? Well, my dad was, is also named Blue. I'm the third, Blueford Bradford Sanders the third. My dad was a lawyer. He was my soccer coach. I mean, he could do a little bit of everything. He was a great builder, great woodworker. I mean, he could, you know, dig up the yard and put your sprinkler system in. We had a small little house when he bought it in the 70s. He built on a big two-story addition and, and did a lot of the work himself. He was big and strong and smart. He had a great, big, intimidating voice, which... But he was very articulate, so I think that helped him. And in the courtroom, he certainly had a big voice when he was my soccer coach. The reason you and I have something in common is my dad had Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. So that's how we kind of have a similar similar path. So I'm from El Paso. I ended up in Nashville as a songwriter. And in 2010, I went home to take care of my dad. His disease had progressed to the point where he could not really use his legs. And when anybody can't use their legs, it's hard to move them around. But when a 200 plus grown man can't use his legs. It's It becomes vital that you have somebody who can do some physical things for you. And that just gets progressively more and more important as the rest of your body sort of deteriorates. In 2010, I left uh, Nashville and went back home to Texas. You had a life you'd created and you made that decision to go home with, to be with your dad, but to care for your dad, not only to be there, but to do the physical labor of what it means to be a caretaker. When you you said, I'm going to come home and do this, did you have any idea what you were getting yourself into? I don't think anybody really knows until they're in it. But I actually had a great friend of mine who I grew up with since I was in elementary school. And her husband was diagnosed at 28. And he died right before or right around the time my dad was diagnosed. So I had actually seen somebody go through it. I went to my friend's wedding. And then four years later, I went to her husband's funeral. So I had a tiny bit of an insight into being a caretaker specifically with ALS. I had been told things like, look, it's tough. You're going to get angry. You're going to fight. You're going to do all these things. And and when you start, you think, I'll be fine. That's you. That's not me. And then you get angry and you fight and you do all the things that they say you're going to do. There's just no way I think you can really be prepared for it. So Blue, tell me about the, I'll call it the honeymoon period of, of caretaking when you're like, I'm yeah. going to go home, going to take care of my dad. How did it start? What was it What was it like to go home? And what was the dynamic with you and your dad? And what were you doing with him? I, I will say that I had gone home quite a few times before I went home permanently mm-hmm. because he had been diagnosed. My dad was fortunate, as if you can call it fortunate, to have been diagnosed Uh, Before he passed away, I mean, it was a good seven years for him, which is quite a long time for an ALS patient. The average is two years. 
He had to retire because he couldn't practice law anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we did a lot of stuff that most people don't get to do, like go to Las Vegas and see Keith Urban and mm-hmm. drive, take an RV and go to the Grand Canyon. And, and we made a long trip. At, my dad got married after he was diagnosed mm-hmm. to my stepmother, Babette, and I took them. I drove this RV on a big three-week long honeymoon RV trip for them. And we went up all the way to Portland to see my dad's old college roommate, Eddie Okies, who's in the book. And then Larry Duthie was a childhood friend of my dad's. He was lived up in Walla Walla. We went to Niagara Falls. We did all the things. Yeah. Who gets to go on their dad's honeymoon with them? <laughs> who who <laughs> wants to go on their dad's honeymoon? Or who's what dad wants their kid to go on the honeymoon? But, you know, we, we had a really... I, it, that sounds silly probably to some people, but it was awesome. And we had an opportunity to do a handful of things as he was progressing. So when I got home, it wasn't any different. He could still stand. You could still get him up. If he fell, he couldn't get up. But he could still get himself in and out of bed. So when I got home at first, it wasn't terrible. So we could call the next door neighbor if he fell and they would help. But when you can't walk or get yourself out of bed or get into the shower or get onto the toilet, I mean, some really basic stuff that you take for granted. You don't sugarcoat caretaking. You've talked to me about it before. I know you've talked to other people about it. It's in your book. You give a really raw, open, realistic take on on what it means to to take care of somebody whose body is failing them, is degenerating and is is failing. Well, it's it's not beautiful. It's hard. You have to sort of separate yourself from what you're thinking when you're going through it because you can get angry and frustrated and think, I can't do this anymore. What am I doing here? I got other things I want to do with my life. You just kind of remember that it's really not you that's suffering. I simply don't understand how people do it. And people do it all the time, every day, all over the world with all kinds of people, not just Lou Gehrig's or Duchenne. I mean, you you know, everybody's got Yeah, you something. just patch it together. I mean, and, and people don't, I don't know how do they it. do it. I guess they don't do it too. They don't do it well. I think there's a, a ton of suffering that goes on. And of course, there's a national conversation going on right now about the burden on caregivers and how do we help the caregivers. So in your case, though, in a really personal way, in your little corner of the world in El Paso mm-hmm. with your dad. What did the caregiving routine look like in the beginning? And when did the car come into the picture for you guys? The car was always in the picture for me. The story is me going home, leaving Nashville, leaving my life, going home to take care of my father who was dying and racing to restore this 1941 Chevrolet Special Deluxe, which had been sitting in my backyard since my dad got it. As an attorney, especially in a small town, poor border town. You do a lot of trading, you do a lot of bartering. So I knew people whose dads and moms were lawyers and they made all kinds of money. But my dad, that wasn't my dad. He just was a regular lawyer, just slugging it out. And so he would trade. So he would come home with these stuff came from Mexico. He'd come up like rolls of snakeskin. You can make boots and stuff out of, uh, I mean, uh, cheese, like big old huge wheels of cheese. Brisket, and it was I remember. Payment for cases. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they would just trade. And in the case of the car, same thing. Like, I can't pay, but here's this old, this old car. And my dad loved cars. And so he took that, pushed it into the backyard. He took it apart. He actually had it painted. He took the engine out. He took it apart completely. Him and a buddy this, uh, from the book, Eddie Solis is his name. I think they took it out together. Eddie took the engine, put it in his house or his garage, and it just sat in my backyard for 30 years. And he never had a chance to, or just never found his way to fixing that car. And it was in decent shape inside. That car was sitting there and I just always wanted to fix it. And so when I came home, I, I mean, I knew right away I want to get that car out and try to do something with it. But Blue, as, as the story goes, you're not a car guy. You're not a mechanic. You had this dream to restore this car, to bring it back to life, so to speak. But you, you were starting at zero. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. So how'd you start? How'd you start the restoration? Well, the first thing was to call Eddie and go look at the engine. And his advice was get a newer engine, not a new engine. I think we got something from like a 69 Chevelle or something. I mean, he, he knew all that stuff. Hey, this is the engine. It's a straight six. You can get X engine from one of these cars and it'll fit right in there. He just helped me kind of walk through it. I mean, there's a lot of YouTubing and manual looking and asking every single person I could possibly ask. It was just piece by piece. Blue, give me a scene from you're in your in your yard. You guys have pulled this car out. You're in the the Texas heat. You're determined to restore this car. You're not a mechanic. You're not a car guy. What's your dad's role as you undertake this? He's in a wheelchair pretty much. I mean, he can't really do, probably has lost his ability to really do anything significant with his hands. He could still put his hands around a coffee mug and take a sip of coffee. Or when you start to lose your hands, you you use silverware that have big like rubber handles on them so you can grip them a little bit better. You don't have that finite stuff. So there's no way he could turn a bolt or lift anything. So he was, let's just say he had a supervisory role. I mean, even as he got worse and worse, I have pictures of it. He would just sit and watch me, which was pretty exciting for him. And the older I get, I really do enjoy just sitting and watching all kinds of things. And so I totally get that. I mean, I'd ask him things and we'd talk about it. But then with Lou Gehrig's, you also lose your voice. So the longer it went on, the harder it was to communicate. And, and it was a lot of sitting there. I mean, eventually we had a breathing machine on the back of his chair and he would just kind of sit with his mask on and mm -hmm. and just be there. Did he give directions when he could? Was he participating? Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah. But I think he also kind of liked the idea of me doing it. And then his friends, Eddie would come over or Jonatel would come over and people would kind of give me, just give me a little advice and then just say, call me tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, do this, cut this and order one of these and good luck. So as you were restoring this car, it was, there was a community being I don't want to say built because this is your hometown and everybody knows everybody, but your community was gathering in a way with you, helping you, guiding you. Yeah. My dad had some really good old friends and I have a lot of good old friends that I sort of attribute to kind of learning about my dad having good old friends and 
people, there were some people that came over a lot and I really loved that. And they would come over for lunch all the time and everybody would always want to see the car. I mean, these guys grew up with these cars. So mm-hmm. any chance to see an old car, they love it. So it's, I think it was fun for them to come over and see it and say, oh, I got a gas tank. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. Looking good. You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, they just like it. That's that's their generation. This was the 40s. My dad was born in 42. So all these guys, they saw cars like this. That was a part of the of the culture growing up, I think, as people their age. It was automobiles. Everybody worked on them. They tore them apart. They fixed them up. They, and people still do that, obviously. But back then, I mean, there was far less to do. Today, I can I can look at Twitter for nine hours in a row, you know, and yeah, never... less distraction. And I yeah. and I wondered too, Blue. I mean, it had to be some sort of a a release for you, a distraction, just something other than the the caretaking. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I drove away from the house to go to the store even, or maybe I went out to grab a beer with someone and I got a call five minutes after I left. Hey, you got to come back. Your dad needs help. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you were just there all the time. That's just it. You were just there. Yes, I would rather be fixing a car than helping my dad use the restroom, but he would rather be doing the car too. I mean, it's, I don't yeah, know. You just, you just do what you do. What made you think you could pull it off, that you could get that car done? <laughs> well, wishful thinking. I don't know. I um, yeah. I just thought I, I had the time and the space to do it. We had a physically decent-sized yard and a big carport. So, we had I had the space and the time and, and the people, the resources. I just thought – I mean, I really didn't plan it that much. I just thought – Kind of happened, yeah. I'm going to get this car. I may not have this kind of time or help ever again. Mm-hmm. And this thing's been sitting here for 35 years. Maybe it's time to try to make it go. Blue, you talk in the book a little bit about the sort of the early stages of your dad's progression of ALS and and when you came home with him and how there's, and understandably so, but oftentimes there's can be some anger and frustration and just that feeling of lack of control. We talk about that a lot from the patient's perspective. I don't know that we really talk about it much from the caregiver's perspective, but did you go through that? Did you, you and your dad? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I write a little bit about it in the book. I mean, there were just the silliest things that we would argue about. You end up fighting, I mean, about the dumbest things. I mean, some things are big, like we, there was a big, I write about in the book, uh, some financial stuff that we argued about. And that was big. Finances are mm-hmm. big. You're sure. stepping on my toe and it hurts is not that big. But when you're in it and you're you're so wired and you don't even realize how tapped out you are. And I mean, I, I write about this thing where I was standing on my dad's foot. And I swear to you, I wasn't standing on his foot. I would still tell mm-hmm. you today I wasn't standing on his foot. <laughs> but he... It hurt because all the blood pools in your feet when you can't move and you mm-hmm. don't. And so, your his feet were swollen like footballs. And I mean, when you touched them, it was like something that I would not even think twice about. It was like I was sticking a needle through his feet or something. I blew up and he blew up. You know, you'd storm off and then my stepmother would come say, hey, your dad needs to get off the toilet. And I'm like, oh, yeah. but I'm angry. <laughs> So then you go back and and then you just let it go. But I mean, you get you get in fights like I never really got in fights with my dad. I just mm-hmm. didn't. And then all of a sudden you're just it's hard. I mean, 
roommates are hard, you know? Somebody leaves a fork on the counter and you want to choke them. And it's like, well, that was really not the, that's not what's really the problem. The problem wasn't that I stepped on my dad's foot or that somebody left a fork on the counter. It was that all of this stuff is, you're powerless for most of it. And, and there's a lot of intense stuff happening. It's hard when you're in it. It's hard to make some mm-hmm. sort of clear, rational decision to be always thoughtful Patient. I'm sure, yes. <laughs> patient. That stuff's hard. Yeah. I mean, I, I know mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, I remember when my dad was really close to dying and acknowledging at that moment and, oh my God, I was apologizing for everything. Because I'm sure many times it was, hey, you got to do this. And I was like, oh God, not again. Meanwhile, I can stand up, walk into his room, pick him up. I'm perfectly healthy. I can do all the things, but it's tough. And I was warned about that stuff early by my friend, especially, hey, you're going to get in these situations that are, you're going to be angry at someone you really, you know, he's my dad and you're going to be butting heads and you don't think you're going to get there, but you get there. I think everybody gets there. Lou, I just think there's this beauty to it. And and I think that anybody who's in a caretaker role or who's what, even just watch somebody that they love or care about struggle and suffer is, you can feel two things at one time. You sure. know, you can feel that extreme exhaustion. You can feel frustration. You can feel anger, but you still can feel that compassion and the need and even the desire to help. I mean, I, you tell a story about the time you guys took a trip and the hotel didn't save you the right room. They didn't put you in the the room with a roll-in shower. They put you in a room that they call accessible and I'm doing air quotes. And it basically means they've slapped up a grab bar next to the toilet. You were traveling for a number of days and you didn't have a way to bathe your dad. And I guess what struck me about that, which makes me just, it's hard, it's hard even to say it out loud, but the sort of difficulty, you know, you and your brother, you laid a tarp on the floor in the hotel to bathe your dad, to care for him and make sure he was okay and to take care of him. And the, I guess the physical part of that, just doing it, like you'll do whatever it takes. But just to me, like that is love. Like that is the definition of love and commitment is it's pretty crummy stuff and it's difficult. And you're just saying, what's the next thing I need to do? Yeah. I mean, you just kind of, you just prepare for those things. That hotel thing really irritated me because they gave it to a VIP. They gave it to a <laughs> VIP guest yes. that, that mm. we were in in the room, and then they moved us because their VIP person wanted the room. And um, I, I get it. I know it's hard to yeah. run a business. And Blue, if I could just pause here and say, hey, everybody out there, VIP hotel guests, like, don't just take the roll-in shower room because you want extra room for your suitcase. <laughs> right. Like, just just don't do it. Trust me yeah. on that one. <laughs> do it's, not it, do it. <laughs> I have, well, of course, you know very well. I mean, it's not an accessible world. And it's very difficult for people to do things in a chair, whether it's just rolling down the sidewalk or or staying in a hotel when you really need it. It's really hard. And yeah. so eventually we just stopped going. But in that particular case, you know, we also just kind of skipped taking a shower. What were the joyful moments when you went home? I just really enjoy being around my family. I really do love El Paso as a city. I could go through and pick certain times that were were great. But any old Tuesday when 
a few guys came over to eat lunch with my dad, was a pretty good day. El Paso weather is extraordinary. So, I mean, I sat on the porch a lot with my dad and mm -hmm. just watched the yard, which sounds kind of boring, but boy, I'd take that a million times. I mean, it. so I, I mean, just those things, most people don't get time to spend with their families after they move on and do whatever they're doing with their lives. But I could pick moments, but I, I mean, just being there and being present was was pretty nice. The little things, right? The little things are the big things. I, say I, mean, I think often. so, especially mm -hmm. now more than ever. You guys, um, you and your dad had some conversations about, I think, as you guys would say, the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. But really some tough moments. And I know I think it was your uncle that had come over a couple of times. And you guys talked about about the end of life, about death. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard any day with anybody. <laughs> It's hard to watch suffering. I mean, to me, that's the ultimate question about the universe is you ask yourself, or at least I did, how could there be some sort of all-powerful being in the universe that can control everything, but my dad's body is destroying itself and mm -hmm. he's slowly dying and nobody can fix it. It's hard to rationalize bad things if there is something in, that's in control of it. So that, you know, watching, or my dad was, I think he just kind of accepted it as it was. And now as he lost his voice, I mean, I don't, it's hard to say, practically speaking, at the end of his life, he couldn't talk. So I really couldn't tell you if at the end of his life, he thought, oh, I had this epiphany and I actually believe X because yeah. he couldn't tell you. I mean, even in the hospital when we're at, a, there's a part in the book where I talk about the doctor asking about a a DNR, a do not resuscitate order. And my dad nods that he has one. And and I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's let's discuss, right? We're, mm. Don't we want to talk about uh, my dad's feelings and what's going on right now? And But you can't do that. But my dad didn't have any fear of talking about the world and philosophically what we're doing and what's next. Yeah. So, Blue, let's talk a little bit more about the car. So, your life was centered in music and then you came home and it was it was this car that yeah. was a kind of a centerpiece for your daily activities as you metaphorically took this really long painful slow walk with your dad and you had a goal for the car tell me what you had hoped to do with restoring the car my dad never drove it he had never seen that car drive and so my goal was to take my dad for a ride i mean i wanted to fix it and put him in the car and drive down the street and that was the simple goal. I mean, it's uh, simple. That was the goal, was mm -hmm. to fix it and, and drive with him anywhere. I mean, just anywhere. And I knew when I started, there was a possibility at some point that he could die before I finished the car. And I didn't think that was really, I mean, 18 months, you can watch TV, they do it in like three hours and just restore the whole <laughs> car. And... uh you should be able to restore a car in 18 months. But also what happens, that becomes less of a priority as as my dad gets worse. And there, yeah. sometimes you go three weeks and you hadn't touched the car. And so, it actually took me two and a half years to finish the car. Yeah, your dad, your dad passed away and you, you had to go back out. You got I mean, a job. I, I really, that's yeah. what it was. I mean, I know it, it's in music and it was on, on a tour. 
I got a job because I needed a job. I mean, my dad, my job was to be home 24 seven with my dad for a year and a half. Then when he was gone, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a publishing deal anymore as a songwriter. I, I just needed a job. I used to be a tech guy out of college in the nineties. I, I thought I was going to go back to doing that. And I wound up as the PA on the Miranda Lambert tour. I was there for nine years working mostly as the assistant tour manager and just doing tour manager things. I literally was gone. I mean, I, and I left when the car was not working. So you went back out on, on tour. You, as you say, got a job, you were back and forth from home occasionally when you had a break, but at some point, finally you got that car running. So my dad died. He just declined and declined. And, and you get to a point in Lou Gehrig's where you have to get a feeding tube, usually get a feeding tube early when you can still eat. And then you have to get a trach tube when you can't breathe on your own. And that's the biggest decision. The trach tube is a much larger life decision than a feeding tube. And so at some point you have to decide if you want to get a trach tube or not, because that's a different type of care. It's a different life. You are now breathing on a machine forever. He didn't want a trach tube. And you know, when you make that choice that you're going to die because mm -hmm. you can't breathe. So as he got worse and worse, it was just, it was a struggle. Every day was, was a struggle. And so the car just kind of took second fiddle to that end of his life. And so he died before I fixed it. And it took me another year to finish the car after he died because I got a job. First, it was just, you know, dealing with the death of, a, of someone in your family. And that's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's a lot of paperwork for God's sake. I mean, it's, it's just a lot, you know, right. there are things, there are physical Emotions. things, emotional <laughs> things. you got all the yeah. things. And somehow a year later on the one year anniversary of his death, I, I, I just brought the car home the night before I was able to drive it. So I drove the car. So he was cremated. We had his ashes. They were sitting on the mantle. I put him in the passenger seat and uh, I drove down the street with him. Did you go anywhere special? Just down the street. Just but, down which the is street. Pretty, which is pretty special. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I have memories of driving that same. I mean, I, we live in a little dead end. So there's two cul-de-sacs on the, I mean, there's probably 10 mm -hmm. houses on the street. And that's where I grew up and the house is still there. I drew, I mean, I remember driving him letting me drive like our, he had an old blazer and driving it real slowly up and down the street, that same path. So that's special to me, Absolutely. just pulling out of the driveway. Well, I want to ask you a couple other things. Um, sure. You talk about your story, and this is actually something you wrote, and it says, it explores the grim reality and brutal deterioration of a ruthless terminal disease coupled with life lessons from a Chevrolet. What did that car do for you guys? What would you say the biggest one is? I think one of the biggest things is people need help. A lot of people need help. It's not just my dad or or Joseph. It's a lot of people. And I and you learn that as you meet. I'm sure you've met a massive community of people like your son. And I've met so many amazing people that are just like my dad. One, they're amazing. But two, they need help. It's an expensive disease. Caretaking is not cheap. Physically, when you need an electric wheelchair, a motorized chair, that is no small expense. 
a car, a van that you can fit a chair in is extremely expensive. Having a person in your house to come bathe someone is expensive. But I do think learning that you serving others serves yourself. And I just believe that so fundamentally in my bones. There's a variety of ways you can do it. But I, I just think ultimately, if you're capable of helping, help. And just that to me was, was kind of the big, one of the biggest takeaways. And the car just sort of supports all of that. I mean, that was, sure. it was a car. I was fixing a car. That's one thing, but it was the whole thing, you know, finding something that matters, committing to it, following through. Yeah. And blue, you know what you just said about if you can help, help. And it wasn't just about you helping your dad and what you did with the car, but it was everybody in your community who kind of came to your aid and and helped you, right? They were all living by that same philosophy. Yeah. If we if we've got something to offer and we can be a part of it and help, let's do it. And I and the way I like to say it, because people will say to me, you have so much on your plate. How do you still like your mission is to like make a difference for other people? And the way I think about it is I always say if if you need a miracle, go be a miracle for somebody else. Right. And our capacity to do that is unlimited. It really is. And it's almost one of those things like the more you pour out, the more you get filled up. I agree a thousand percent. You've done that in a pretty significant way. I've got a whole other lifetime of things I'd like to do better and make up for and all that stuff. But I'm happy that I had the ability to help when my dad needed it. And not everybody has that chance. I agree. So... As we sort of end our time together, here's what I think is pretty special. Has anybody ever read you a part of your own book? Because <laughs> I have a line I want to share with you. Sure. I, I, yeah, okay. Sure, of course. Yeah. So you talk about this time in, in the book after your dad passed away. You said, I remember looking down my street the day after my father died and watching the traffic in the distance. It didn't stop. The cars passed and they traveled to wherever it was they were going and presumably arrived at their destinations. The next day, the garbage would be picked up. People would still go to work. The world would simply continue to spin, both metaphorically and quite literally, not acknowledging in any real way that my father was no longer alive. It was a strange realization that really no one but us paused in tribute. And I got to tell you, I've read your writing three or four times on your dad and on his death. And for all that you've shared and given us today, like my hope is people listening will help you know that people are pausing in tribute to your dad and to you and to what you did and the sacrifices that you made so humbly and taking care of your dad and just sharing it. You know, sometimes I don't even like using the word inspiration, but just sharing it. I don't know, maybe just for us to kind of soak it in and let it change the rest of us for the better. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, that line, I actually do, I remember where I was standing when I looked down at the end of the street, and it is sometimes hard to just be in it on your own by yourselves, but but that's just the way it is. You know, that's just the way it is. Now, I try to think about other people when, when they have somebody pass away and reach out, especially after the initial stuff, and, and just reach out and see how it's going. That can be one of the emptier times is after a little bit of time has gone. Because at first you're overwhelmed. There's so many people. And that's just the way those things work. But I hope it helps people. I, I do I do love when somebody reaches out and, and lets me know they read the story and it, and it mattered to them. And it sounds silly, but it really, it's just one person at a time. And that, that does 
that is why you do it. And, and what else can you do but to share it one person at a time? Yeah, well, I think your story is helping, Blue. I think it's generous and brave of you to share it. Thank you so much for being here with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.